Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Biweekly Geopolitical Report podcast for February 14th, 2022. I'm Phil Adler. The latest Confluence Geopolitical Report addressed some of the key questions regarding Ukraine, including the possible impact on investments. It was written by Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady and Confluence Market Strategist Patrick Fearon Hernandez, and both Bill and Patrick join us today. Bill and Patrick, I don't want to simply recover ground you've already explored in your written report, although some overlap is probably unavoidable. We really don't have time to explore all the military possibilities. Instead, I'd like to frame our discussion around possible long-term ramifications stemming from the crisis, understanding that current events are fast-moving, and the headlines may have changed between the time of our recording this conversation and the date our audience may actually be listening to it. As we record, there's no way to know for sure what Russian President Putin will do. But we do know that America, which has been withdrawing from its world policeman role, is suddenly back in that role again. So my first question to both of you is, are Americans really ready to commit to an Eastern European troop buildup and ready to engineer the sort of financial hardships on Russia that would significantly reverse the U.S. retreat in recent years from hegemon status? Well, I'll start off, Phil. I have my doubts. The The Biden administration is reacting to current tensions, but the longer run goal seems to be to shift focus to the Far East. I don't see a domestic political commitment to a Cold War level of involvement. That doesn't mean there won't be a recalibration that we, we have too few military resources in the area. But I think the U.S. really wants Europe to shoulder more responsibility for their collective defense, and that requires finally solving the German problem in Europe, and I have little confidence that the Europeans can make that occur. I think you're right that Americans probably aren't ready to commit to a Cold War level of involvement in Europe, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's enough support for a modest or temporary surge of U.S. forces to Europe, especially if it seems likely that would be enough to convince Putin to back off of Ukraine. My read of the responses so far is that both the U.S. and its NATO allies have a certain amount of geopolitical and military muscle memory arising from decades of cooperation against the USSR during the Cold War. And that allows for a natural coalescing of determination when faced with a Russian threat. Of course, NATO has always had intra-alliance disagreements, as every alliance has. In my years at NATO headquarters during the late 1980s and early 1990s, if you were organizing a meeting, you couldn't even sit a Greek delegate next to a Turk because their governments had so many issues. And everyone would roll their eyes when a French delegate spoke because Paris insisted that every official statement be in French, which necessitated using the translator staff, even when the fellow's English was perfectly fine. But at the end of the day, literally, we would all go out for a Stella Artois or a Jubilé or a Left Blonde at a pub in the Grand Place, and we would bond and build real, lasting bridges. On the international staff, my bond 
boss was British, his boss was French, and our secretary was Turkish. To this day, my wife and I stay in touch with and, and visit my Belgian co-worker, who's now with the Belgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You know, multiply these kinds of regular, lasting contacts among the thousands and thousands of Americans and Canadians and Icelanders and Europeans at NATO headquarters or at SHAPE headquarters in Mons or in bases all over the continent for decades. And you can understand why lots of Americans might support some show of strength to defend Europe. How might a trend back toward U.S. hegemony alter the investment landscape? Well, it would continue to foster globalization, which would lead to contained inflation. It would also be friendly for large caps over small caps. Yeah, although any move back in the direction of U.S. hegemony may be more regional than we've seen over the last few decades. If the U.S. helps prevent a Russian misadventure in Europe, it may help reinvigorate U.S.-European ties, but that wouldn't necessarily mean closer ties again between the U.S. and China. Instead of a full globalization, it may be more like block globalization with deep, full relationships to traditional U.S. allies like Europe, but continuing separation from China and Russia. Well, taking into account current German reluctance to publicly commit to sanctions because of its reliance on Russian gas, are you confident Europe could unite or could a divide between Germany and the rest of Europe actually help contribute to possibly a breakup of the European Union? I kind of have a pessimistic long-term view that the EU is either doomed to break apart or it must live under German domination. And Germany has a history of making arrangements with Russia. Germany could take steps to reduce its dependence on Russia. The decision, for example, to phase out nuclear power has increased that dependence. So returning to nuclear power would be a move in that direction. But ultimately, Germany is the most powerful nation in Europe, and its vision of the EU is key. And if there is an agreement, unity will be hard to maintain. Germany is certainly the biggest and most powerful country in Europe, but it's pretty isolated in this crisis. Importantly, it's coming under a lot of pressure, not just from its European partners, but also from the U.S. The EU and NATO are alliances that require constant maintenance and cultivation, and there's always the chance that neglecting those requirements will lead to weakness or a breakup. In this case, however, the strong pressure from the U.S. and other important powers in Europe could ultimately bring Germany around, in my opinion. There has been a lot of commentary written and aired concerning what Putin might really want. But do you think Russia has increased its influence on world affairs no matter what happens, whether there's an outbreak of fighting, an invasion, or, or simply an eventual diplomatic sleight of hand allowing both sides to save face? Well, he's trying to boost his influence, but he does so from a position of weakness. Russia's demographics are terrible. Its economy is overly dependent on natural resources. It's arguable that Putin's actions to increasing its global stature are leaving it overextended. I think it's generally acknowledged that Putin has played a bad hand well, but his bluff in Ukraine may have failed. That's especially true if his antics lead to a lasting reinvigoration of NATO and the U.S. that's refocused on Russia. I don't think a lot of people around the world had warm thoughts for Putin before this crisis, but now he may have spurred greater official focus on containing him. 
Bill and Patrick, it's come to light during this crisis that Russia has been drastically reducing its dependence on the dollar in recent years, building its reserves with euros, the Chinese currency and gold. Just recently, Russia and China announced a 30-year agreement to supply natural gas to China, and the sale of that would be settled in euros and not dollars. Do you think this is one more event in a trend that augurs a long-term worldwide decline in the strength of the dollar with significant ramifications? It's a good question. I'm, I'm not really sure. Russia may have merely moved from being dependent on the West to being dependent on China. By sheer size of the economy, if Russia ties its future to China, Beijing will dominate. Now, for Russia, that may not be all bad. For China, outside of arms and natural resources, the inability to use dollar for trade with Russia just may not be all that attractive. You know, another sidelight to all this is that the idea of holding euros instead of dollars allows Russia to avoid a dollar-based financial system. But if European banks are tied to the dollar, they may end up being reluctant to facilitate Russian financial transactions, even if they are conducted in euros. Exactly. In, in fact, you could also look at Russia's actions from a glass half full perspective. On the one hand, yes, the Russians have greatly reduced the share of the dollar in their foreign reserves. On the other hand, they certainly haven't brought the share down to zero. For any number of reasons, they still seem to need a significant amount of dollars. And that points to the continued importance of the greenback in the global economic and financial system. Let's look for a moment at possible sanctions to be employed against Russia. Regarding the possible cutting off of Russia from SWIFT, the international messaging service between financial institutions, how painful would this actually be for Russia? Well, you hear a lot of speculation. Personally, I think it'd be pretty painful. It will essentially reduce the value of Russian exports and perhaps even more important, reduce the availability of imports. Yes, China will ignore the ban, but at the cost of making Russia a Chinese vassal. I would even say that it would push Russia even more into a grouping of bad boy states at large. It would push Russia further into China's arms, but also further into the arms of countries like Iran. How about the U.S. threat to block high-tech exports to Russia? Is this a practical threat that would sting Russia hard? Well, I think it's kind of hard to tell until it happens. What is always a surprise is how mundane products have become dependent on computer chips and other technology. It's really difficult to know in advance how important a threat is, but, but I think it's significant. Yeah, it's especially significant from a military standpoint. Russia isn't exactly a broad manufacturing powerhouse, but it does produce a lot of military equipment, including weapons with a lot of information technology. To the extent that Russia finds it harder to procure computer chips and other technology because of these sanctions, it could slow the rollout of new weaponry to the armed forces. That's important because Russia's military modernization is still a work in process. Slowing that process down would be painful for the Kremlin. Do you think just the threat of these sanctions, even if they're not fully implemented, has created a new scenario which has long-term implications for investments and in particular commodity prices, not only oil and gas, but also copper, aluminum, and wheat, which are currently among leading Russian exports? 
Well, as always, Phil, you've, you ask the most interesting questions. In general, commodities are often sourced from unsettled parts of the world. So even with the threat of sanctions, buyers are going to continue to make purchases from Russia until they absolutely cannot. So if we see an easing of tension, I would expect commodity prices decline in the short run. Now, that being said, we remain long-term commodity bulls. Waning U.S. hegemony will likely lead to stockpiling, and that will support commodity prices. Yes, and it's important to remember that this crisis is happening against a backdrop of many other trends that could buoy commodity prices going forward. For example, increased environmental regulation in many countries will likely have the effect of raising costs and limiting supply as global population growth slows down and even goes into reverse in some countries. Scarce labor will likely be more expensive. No matter how the Russia-Ukraine crisis evolves, we would expect a prolonged period of rather high commodity prices. As our discussion comes to a close, are either of you confident enough to predict a short-term impact on investments at the time of this recording? Uh, well, you you set us up to fail, but until peace breaks out, oil and natural gas prices will likely continue to trend higher. And I would say that since any conflict could cut energy supplies to Europe with potentially large economic effects, I think European equities will remain under pressure until the situation is resolved. Finally, Confluence Investment Management pays a lot of attention to the impact of geopolitics on investments. How has this focus in the past led to profitable decisions as your analysts construct asset allocation models? Well, probably one of our best calls in recent years was in rare earths. We saw that China was using them as a geopolitical weapon, and they had a stranglehold on both mining and processing. Their dominance in mining has waned, but in processing, they are still in control. We did have some exposure to rare earths in our hard asset portfolio, but at the time, there was not enough granularity to make the same investment in our asset allocation portfolios. And I would say that another good example is how our analysis provided an early warning of China's recent crackdown on certain private industries and the U.S. crackdown on some Chinese investments at the same time. Those initiatives have weighed pretty heavily on Chinese stocks over the last year or more. Fortunately, our understanding of where things were going prompted us to reduce our exposure to Chinese equities in our strategies with emerging markets exposure, which helped shield us from the drop in Chinese stocks. Thank you, Bill and Patrick. To read the written report addressing key questions regarding Ukraine, go to confluenceinvestment.com and click on the geopolitical report tab. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.